So today is the third uh, exploration of this teaching called Dependent Origination, sometimes called Dependent Arising, which is the teaching that comes out of the awakening of the Buddha. And it's really the direct communication from his core insight. And it's the most elaborate version of what really is the most basic teaching, which is that uh, because of underlying ignorance, which which we'll unpack in a while, which can mean spiritual ignorance, personal ignorance, social ignorance, because of that ignorance, there are tendencies or dispositions in our being which lead us to have minds which are full of reactivity, of difficult emotions, and then we act unskillfully and perpetuate the ignorance and that there are continual cycles. The other side of the teaching is that these cycles can be broken. That the, that the roots of ignorance and dispositions to be reactive and unskillful actions can all be transformed. That it's possible to uproot ignorance, to work through tendencies, to be with the reactivity of the mind and transform it, and to not engage in unskillful actions through a course of what we call practice, through a community-supported series of trainings, really. So on the one hand, an analysis of the roots of suffering. On the other hand, what I'll primarily look at today, a sense of how to intervene skillfully in the cycles which lead to suffering. So this is the heart of the teaching. Everything else is a development of that core message. And of course, that message can be found in different versions in other traditions. You know, I think uh, a little bit, you know, a little bit different emphasis here. Here the emphasis is particularly on ignorance and on confusion. That sense, as I've mentioned a few times, it's an optimistic view of human nature. It's a sense that human nature is basically good and that the roots of problems are, in a sense, secondary to that goodness. So it's both a direct and a hard teaching because it focuses right away on cycles of suffering, right? And we think, oh, gosh, pessimistic teaching. But actually, uh, it does so from an optimistic point of view, if we can call it that, or a, a point of view that says that uh, although there's tremendous confusion, tremendous ignorance, as Shanti Davis said in the 8th century, this world is beset with insanity due to the efforts of those who are confused about themselves. Guide for reading the newspapers. (laughs) Um, Even though uh, there's tremendous uh, pain and suffering, Ultimately, that comes, we might say, from a more 
shallow part of ourselves, even though it's deep in a certain sense. It comes from a more shallow part of ourselves than our basic nature, which is that of wisdom, compassion, love, and so forth. Again, we find that message in different ways in other traditions. Here, I think we're particularly, many of us are particularly drawn because it's not just, as it were, a metaphysics, but it's also a very direct pointing to practical ways to transform the suffering and open up to that wisdom and compassion. And that's why many of us are drawn here, because it's practical, it's experiential, it's not based in dogma, it's not based on having to have faith in unprovable uh, assertions or dogmas or beliefs. And, and so that's what, these models, that's what these models are about. And this teaching of dependent origination is the key to looking at the roots of suffering. And what I'll do today is I'll take us briefly through that, because a number of you were not here. Probably the majority were here the last time or the time before. And those recordings of the last two times are available to listen to. So for those who weren't here, uh, I'm, I'm going to give a very brief overview. It'll be, uh, admittedly, a little bit quick. <laughs> but I think, I think hopefully we'll get the, uh, the essence of it. And then I'll uh, mostly focus on how, given that understanding, do we understand uh, how we intervene in the cycles of suffering? How do we transform suffering? That's, that's my focus today. And then next time, I think, unless, uh, unless today needs a lot more further unpacking, I'm thinking to work with a related model called liberative dependent origination uh, for the next two weeks, which is about the ways that when we start with a different, different relationship to pain and suffering, rather than just seeing that pain is a problem, get rid of it, rather than be caught by the cycles. When we have a different attitude, it opens up a whole field of practice. And there is a classical teaching called liberative dependent origination, which shows not just the cycles of suffering, but the cycles of liberation. In a way, I'm going to look at that in a similar way today, but the, the model I'm planning to look at the next two times unpacks it in a little bit different way. Interestingly, it talks about how having a different sense of, uh, basically having a sense that pain and suffering are workable leads to faith, which leads to delight, which leads to deepening practice and so forth. So anyway, more, more on that next time. That's preview of coming attractions. How does that go? Preview of coming, what's the phrase? That's it. That's it, okay. Okay, so... I mentioned last time that the teaching is here. Uh, dependent origination is the general principle of conditionality. That everything is conditioned. That everything comes according to causes and conditions. That every experience, every object in the world... Uh, and that, that's a general teaching. The teaching here about the causes and conditions which lead to suffering is a specific application of the general teaching. Dependent origination is the general teaching, but it, where it's really developed in detail is in this model of suffering. We could also have a model of dependent origination of how a sense of self appears. 
or, you know, how the winds blow or whatever, because it's really taken to be a general principle that uh, nothing is independent. So the other side of dependent origination, another way to talk about it is to talk about um, complete interdependence of causes and conditions. So it connects well as a model to understand uh, not only our minds, but also ecological situation, just that everything is in relationship with everything else. So, um, so I mentioned that the, the core of the teaching, I, I've been um, instructed by Guy Armstrong, who's a colleague here at Spirit Rock, to, to understand, and this will be a way that I look at the interventions, to understand these 12 factors in a few, uh, according to a certain analysis. So let me give a very quick overview of the 12 factors, then give uh, a few ways of understanding them, and then go into how we intervene. Okay. So the model is generally understood as a cycle, you know, that one influences two, ignorance and unknowing or ignorance influences dispositions or conditioning activity, which influences the next one, which influences the next one. That's one way of understanding it. We can also understand this as a web in which everything is influencing everything else, which is probably more the way it is, that uh, our ignorance is influencing all the other aspects of experience. And it's not it's not as linear as this model looks like. So this is, I think, linear for the purposes of simplifying for the sake of teaching. Okay? But it can still, so just to, just to let us know that the, the um, as one of my teachers a long time ago said, all concepts leak. which means that all concepts are pragmatic tools to help us understand and they shouldn't be taken as the absolute truth, right? Or to correspond in some absolute way with reality. Okay, just remember that. So, <laughs> so, uh, so again, we might see this as actually, I think I had a quotation from, uh, Gil Fransdale reflected on this. He said this, uh, all 12 of these links, uh, uh, they seldom operate in a neat 12-step sequence. More often they all interact and shape one another in complicated ways. Instead of a circle, it might be useful to see each as different threads of a matted ball of threads. <laughs> so different, different metaphors. So going through them quickly, and then I'll come back with an overview and give some examples to show how, to, uh, how they can be understood. So um, we typically start with um, ignorance, number one, and um, ignorance is typically the root. Uh, what causes ignorance is number 12, which is uh, summarized as aging and death, but it's actually shorthand for suffering. Remembering the distinction that I gave in some detail last time between pain and suffering. Pain is the present of the unpleasant, and suffering is the reaction to what's there whether it's the pushing away compulsively or the grabbing hold. So suffering, in some ways, we could say, is resistance to the present moment. Some kind of dissatisfaction, inability to be with the present moment. So it's a a different definition of suffering 
than is commonplace in, in English or maybe in, in other languages as well. You know, that it's, uh, it really points to the resistance to the present moment and reactivity being the definition of suffering. So I'm suffering when I have an unpleasant sensation in my body and I, I contract and I resist and I don't want that. That is defined as suffering. Or I have anger and I say, I don't want to be angry. And we contract, you know. Or I don't like what someone says and I go, <laughs> you know, with words. <laughs> you know, or, or, you know, I guess, or I like a cat, I just hiss. <sighs> you know, we, we do that sometimes, right? So, um, and that would be called reactivity, that's suffering. Now, interestingly, suffering conditions ignorance. And I'll get back to that in the case of, of some examples, or maybe even to bring them out now, that um, um, maybe an example or two that will follow. I wanted to give the example of, um, um, let's say, one, one example I was thinking of was addiction. You know, which is, which is, I think this this model unpacks addiction quite well because what we're going to see is that uh, again, this is controversial, but generally, an addicted person is going to have certain really uh, difficult early experiences, often trauma, which predispose that person to have very negative thoughts about self, which then predispose that person to find relief in some kind of uh, drug. Okay. And again, that, that's not accepted as an interpretation of addiction by everyone, but I think that from what I've heard and read, that makes some sense. And so with the addicted person, there's typically some initial suffering. I think one person whose work I've studied, uh, Gabor Mate, says that, you know, and he was, he's a physician in Vancouver, and for a long time he studied uh, addictions in the, uh, I think it's called the downtown east side of Vancouver which has, I think, the heaviest concentration of drug addiction in the world. It's very, you know, I've been through there. It's quite, a, quite an intense place. Some of you maybe have been to that part of Vancouver. Yeah. And um, he said that in the people he studied, 100% of them had trauma in their background, typically childhood abuse. You know? And that, so there's some suffering which leads them to a kind of ignorance where they think to themselves, I am no good. You know, I have, you know, because children tend to, when there's a horrible experience, they tend to think, it's about me, right? Parents divorce at age six, it's my fault. Very common, you know, uh, reaction. And so the, let's say, the six-year-old who, who has had really traumatic experience, a kind of suffering too confusing to deal with, as a coping mechanism, says, uh, you know, in order to make it work, I am not good. This must make sense of it. This is the only way I can make sense of what's happened. Has that belief which carries through to, uh, through to um, further life. And then has, we might say, has that root ignorance at a deep level of the psyche, typically unconscious, right? So there's ignorance. That will lead that person to have certain dispositions, right? to have certain tendencies. That person will have tendencies to try to basically escape from the present reality. That person will not want to 
go deeper, will not want to be vulnerable. If that person's in a relationship, that person will not want to go into real feelings because if one goes into real feelings, you'll go into the really difficult stuff. And you, so, you, so that person will have certain dispositions. I don't want to feel things. I want to escape. That will lead... Um, I won't go into the complications of... It will influence consciousness significantly. will influence name and form. Number four is the, the way the mind and body are working. Of course, it will deeply influence the mind and the body and the way the senses are working. And then uh, going down to six, when there is a contact, let's say there's a contact with an experience, there's a difficult experience, and the person has an unpleasant feeling, there'll be a, pre, there'll be a disposition. Oh, this is really uncomfortable. I want that drug. Because there I can find escape and relief and a good feeling, temporarily. Long run, of course, destructive, right? But in the short run, it makes sense. It's a coping mechanism to deal with the underlying suffering, which leads to an underlying belief about self, I am no good, which leads to predispositions and so forth. Is this making some sense? You know, and so that would be an example. That's an, that's an interpretation of drug addiction, not as a moral issue, but as something that can be unpacked by looking at the deeper suffering and the deeper ignorance and the predispositions which are set in motion. And we could, um, then we see, you know, without breaking through that cycle, that person has a difficult experience, will have craving, number eight will say, I want that, and then number nine, acting, will go and use the drug. And that sets in motion. Number ten, we typically interpret as um, just the becoming, the continuation of the habit energy which leads uh, eventually to uh, the uh, development, you know, the habit is, as it were, born again and then leads to suffering. So not everything fits perfectly here conceptually, but I think you get the idea here. There's a cycle. And we could also understand this, um, you know, with, some, with other, other phenomena. We could under, probably look at any kind of suffering and unpack it with that model. But does that make sense as a way of seeing the whole model for people who are here for the first time? Uh, I, think, I think the addiction model is interesting because, again, we can look for, for uh, trauma. You know, I, I was also thinking that I think I could understand um, um, racism. A lot of phenomena of racism can also fit this model. I was thinking of that, that for example, um, there's a certain amount of suffering which is there, let's say, with the legacy of slavery. And uh, it, it has a huge impact on the psyche. Okay? And, there's, and the whole, uh, um, all, all, you know, I, I was thinking of that uh, study, which I've mentioned here from time to time, that, um, you know, with, uh, it was a study that showed that uh, young African-American girls in New York, this is the study that was one of the basic studies cited by the 1954 Supreme Court decision to outlaw segregation. And it was a study done in the 40s and 50s, and uh, some recent studies have shown that hasn't changed that much. It was a study of young girls, four or five, being given two dolls, one black and one white, and asked, which is the good doll? And their answer was, the white doll is the good doll, and the black doll is the bad doll. Which doll is like you? The black doll, right? Very, very deep. Now, we would call that 
a very, very deep kind of ignorance, you know, which is socially conditioned, right, from the messages they're getting. And so with that, and that ignorance is conditioned by suffering, you know, and by the, the ways of reacting. And so that will lead someone with those internalized beliefs and ignorance about self and ignorance not really being in touch with the, um, with the uh, fundamental goodness that we were talking about. And I, I should also say that there, there's subtlety here because that kind of negative view of self may have been a, a good coping mechanism at the time of slavery. For someone to say, I'm not really good, might mean that that person wouldn't get sold away and could stay with the family at the time of slavery, you know, and who knows? Things may, may just continue like that. Do, do, does that make some sense? That uh, self-deprecation in a situation where if you stand out and are good, you get taken away from your family, sold on the market, right? Can, you know, who knows? That can have an effect two generations later of certain kinds of self-deprecation made sense as a coping mechanism at one point, doesn't later, right? It's destructive later. A lot of the way our psychology works is like that, right? <coughs> we, all learn, we all learn certain things when we were kids that made sense at the time. You know, if my a family, example I often give, my family told me not to be angry and I, and I suppressed my anger in order to continue to get love from my family, it makes sense at age six at age 40, I go to therapy for the issue, <laughs> right? You know, so we have coping mechanisms which make sense at a younger age. The coping mechanism of the person who's been traumatized makes sense at age six. At age 40, that person's an addict. That doesn't make sense. Right? So I think a lot of our psychology is like that, right? You know, the person... Um, and so this model is helpful for that. So we see that that cycle leads to all sorts of behavior. If I have this hugely negative view of myself, it's going to lead to certain tendencies, certain dispositions, and eventually certain actions. Now, one way of um, summarizing this in a way which lets us see where we can most skillfully intervene is something that, that I got from uh, Guy Armstrong in part. I think I've developed it some, but he, let's see where this is. He summarized it like this in terms of, you know, we have the 12 factors here, but if we simplify it, we can simplify it in a way that really makes it obvious where to intervene. And that's by simplifying it to four basic tendencies. One is that there is ignorance, and from the ignorance comes certain tendencies, certain dispositions. From the dispositions comes certain, uh, comes reactivity. You know, comes certain aspects of our mind from from our dispositions. Again, to give an example, if I um, um, maybe I'll use an example from the work I do with people with judgmental mind. Someone, if someone has that experience of being told that anger is bad, that person suppresses the anger. That person will have a tendency to uh, judge harshly the anger when it appears in oneself or when it appears in another, okay? So the ignorance is there from the early childhood experience. The disposition is there to judge, to, to not want there to be anger, either in oneself or other. That will lead to certain 
thoughts, attitudes, judgmental mind when anger appears in that person, or let's say he's an eight-year-old and someone else gets really angry and the, person, the little kid says, you shouldn't get angry, right? and is judgmental and reactive. That comes, you can see how that comes from ignorance leads to tendencies, which leads to reactivity in the mind, which leads to action. Four aspects, ignorance, dispositions, reactivity in the mind, and then an action. Okay, does that make some sense? So this suggests then four areas to intervene. And this is, um, I want to talk about the intervention in a few, maybe using a few different examples. One of them would be most generally in terms of our practice. Because the whole, in fact, there's there's a text where the Buddha looks at these 12 links that I've just gone through briefly, hopefully understandably. Um, and he looks at the links and he says, the way out of ignorance, the way to address these cycles is through the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is really understood as a direct intervention. So I wanted to talk about, to let us to see that the different path aspects can be understood in this way. And they can be understood specifically by looking at these four aspects, ignorance, dispositions, reactivity in the mind, in lived experience, and then the action. Now, often the ignorance and the dispositions are unconscious or half-conscious, so they have to be opened up to. Where we often first intervene is with the reactivity in the mind or our actions. So, for example, often a starting point in our practice is to be ethical. It's to follow ethical guidelines. It's to follow, for example, wise speech, so that if we have the tendency, if I have that background as a person wanting to judge anger, and I I am now a practitioner, I'm no longer 8 years old, I am 30 years old, or 40 years old, or 50 years old, or 60 years old, and I'm a practitioner who comes faithfully to Spirit Rock, and, and I'm, uh, I've been practicing mindfulness, and I have a commitment to the ethical principles, among them, skillful speech, right? And there's, there are these, uh, as it were, behavioral guidelines for speech practice. We're asked to be truthful, helpful, to come out of a good heart, and to have good timing, and appropriateness of our speech. And I'm practicing the ethical guidelines, and I find myself getting really angry at this, or, and judgmental at this person who's angry. Okay. And I don't necessarily initially notice the irony, but maybe later I do. <laughs> okay. and, uh, and I notice a thought forming in my mind, you know, you're a bad person. Right? And I've practiced the ethical guidelines, and I simply don't say it. Shanti Deva from the 8th century has that line, when you get filled with anger, the best thing to do is to become like a bump on a log. <laughs> Don't act, in other words. And that is one way to intervene. You know, I follow the ethical guidelines, and that particularly covers the uh, aspect of action, which is especially linked with the movement from 8 to 9 on this model. It would be the movement from this reactivity in the mind, the craving, the aversion, and that leading to uh, grabbing hold or pushing away. Here, pushing away could be interpreted 
as saying some certain things, saying negative things. That's, that would be a form of number nine on this, on this diagram. And so I follow the ethical guidelines and I'm more skillful in not uh, doing certain things, right? I don't, I maybe am more careful with uh, grasping after, uh, let's see, I'm particularly careful with not hurting other people, right? With, with being very careful about actions which in some ways say nasty things, do things which are harmful, right? And that is one way of intervening. It's quite important. You can see from the model that that's going to be helpful because when I don't act, I don't continue all the consequences of the action. I'm having an intervention in the cycle But you can see that simply acting ethically doesn't necessarily uproot the ignorance or the dispositions, right? It doesn't necessarily uh, do that. It's valuable, but this is why I think we all know that people can be very ethical and still have all sorts of problems. Sorry. (laughs) And that's interesting. We can say, oh, that person's a goody-goody, really ethical, but there's stuff that's not explored, right? Not unpacked. But the ethics is an important way that we particularly focus on the action aspect, which is more the identified with number nine on, the, on this diagram with the grasping or the pushing away. Now, if we go further backwards and we look to a tool like uh, mindfulness and our meditative practice, let's say our meditative practice, how does that help us intervene? Uh, concentration and mindfulness, let's say. Well, we need a certain amount of concentration just to watch our minds, just to not be taken away by reactivity in the mind, not to be taken away by negative emotions, by stories we tell ourselves, and to be not so much lost in the compulsive tendencies of our mind, right? Which is really particularly occurring between uh, seven and nine. You know, that's where we would have reactivity. So the mindfulness lets me notice, oh, I'm really angry. Oh, look at those stories I'm telling about that other person. Oh, look at that. Let me, oh. And that actually, in the long run, we become like detectives. We, we're mindful. We know, start noticing, as it were, what surfaces in a given phenomena, kind of like, almost like the iceberg. We see the top of the iceberg with our mindfulness. And over time we see that other 80 or 90% of the iceberg which is beneath the water. That's how mindfulness works. We become like detectives that start with mindfulness and we trace the mindfulness over time back further to what the urges, the dispositions which are pushing certain states of mind and then eventually to the underlying ignorance. So our mindfulness is mostly operating, I think, between... Uh, maybe between six and nine. Uh, And that is very, very important. And it also lets us, when we're mindful, we will much more likely not necessarily, we will much more likely not act in the unskillful way. So mindfulness is incredibly important just to notice all of the patterns, to see what's going on, to notice, oh, whenever I see someone else angry, uh, I get judgmental, to actually start to see. So mindfulness works in a few different ways. Mindfulness works partly by just feeling what's there in the present moment, 
and being with it, being able and being able to be with it, and notice uh, that there is a tendency occurring. Let's say that I'm, I'm really, I notice myself really angry, and judgmental, and I say, and I, I notice it enough, I hang out with it. Oh, I'm angry and judgmental, and I stay with it, and I explore it, and rather than as it was in the past with the anger and the judgment immediately leading to saying something. Now I notice it, I study it, I feel it, I say, oh, look, something's up. (laughs) Something's happening, right? And I get to study it. Eventually I can also study the patterns. I start to see, oh, what triggers my anger and my judgment? Oh, it's someone else being angry. Oh, maybe I have an issue about anger. Oh, I'm glad I leave in Marin. There's so many therapists here. <laughs> you know, you know uh, I can get good rates because it's so competitive. <laughs> you know, and uh, but I start to see there's an issue here, right? And it's a lot of you know a lot of the early discoveries in meditation are, oh my God, look at how my mind works, right? It's like you know, it's like. Uh, that statement I've, I may have said a few times ago, Trungpa Rinpoche, Tibetan teacher, self-knowledge is 70% bad news. <laughs> and, and I get to see that pattern, and I get to be able to um, uh, both not have the reactivity lead to action, and then I start getting interested in following the pattern back further, and seeing, oh, where is this coming from? And that will start taking me back to looking at the underlying tendencies, dispositions, and ultimately the underlying ignorance. So, for example, when I work with people on judgmental mind, we do follow the cycle back. You know, we want to intervene multiple places. We want to intervene with ethics, so we're just not acting in such a um, way that has the negative consequences. We also want to use mindfulness and really study it. But mindfulness by itself has to go deeper. Mindfulness is really a way to open up to what's deeper. You can see here with the example I'm giving that we need to go further back to the dispositions and the underlying ignorance. And so when I work, for example, with people on judgmental mind, we use the mindfulness as the beginning of detective work. We start to see, okay, there's a pattern. There's a pattern here. I'm getting angry and judgmental when someone else is angry. Oh, okay. Let me look at that. You know, and we do, uh, we use uh, different practices that take us towards the underlying energy. We use a practice in a lot of what I, when I work with people, where we go from the actual experience of the reactivity, and I take people to go not just, from, not just look at the verbal level of the judgment, but what does it feel like in the body? What's the body energy happening? And then we go beneath, as it were, the storyline, into the body, sometimes memories come up. It becomes like an inquiry where we go beneath the surface. And we can sometimes, when we stay with it long enough, we have a, and I, I, give, you know, I give some instruction on this, sometimes people will start to see, oh, there's an underlying core belief. And this takes some support and some help. There's an underlying core belief, which we could say is part of ignorance. There's a core belief, anger is bad. And people can start to see that. And then we would also want to work um, in a few other ways. 
we would um, we'd also want to have people start having a sense of their deeper nature. You know, to start having people have a sense of who they are that's not limited by the core belief. So one way, for example, that has some, it's a controversial area, but one way that's been sometimes worked with with addiction, I know this has been done in, I think it's in either, I think Thailand. There was a monk who worked with addicts. He took them on meditation retreats. It was very, very high discipline, almost military, because they needed like incredibly strong support to actually stay with what's there. He took them into meditation deeply enough where they had a sense of their own love and beauty and like the open, beautiful mind, right? Through meditation. And once they've had that experience, it's not the end of the story, but they suddenly have a, it goes right against the core belief that I'm worthless. When people have had that experience, I am beautiful. Again, it's one moment. It has to be supported further but it breaks the ignorance, right? Same thing with us with meditation. When we have done retreats or we have these experiences where we know I am this beautiful, luminous being at my best full of love and wisdom, then sometimes the negative story is that you are a schlump. (laughs) That's kind of modified Yiddish, sorry. (laughs) Or you are a schlemiel. (laughs) So, anyway, I'm getting a little ethnic here. Um, but um, but when, we have, when we have those kind of beautiful experiences, which happen when we do meditation at times, right? We have these amazing experiences, and they contradict the core beliefs that might have been inculcated when we were young, which are more negative. That I am bad, I am worthless, or I... You know, even if there are other beliefs, that's not the final story. So these... so. I've heard also, sometimes even in the field of addiction, I know that uh, in the 1950s, uh, the psychiatrist uh, Stanislav Grof, who some of you know, uh, who's written quite a number of books, he actually was working with people with deep psychological issues, I think sometimes trauma, with uh, psychedelic drugs, with with LSD in particular, and he found that, that those... Uh, drugs sometimes open them up to these experiences which went so way beyond their sense of being bad that it actually was a pivotal way of intervention. I think I think one can do the same in meditation or in some other ways. Maybe being, you know, just having tremendous support, maybe being in nature, you know. Um, but to have that experience, that cuts, that goes right to the heart. It cuts through the ignorance, which says, I am not so good. It also cuts through the primeval ignorance that is talked about in Buddhist tradition that I am fundamentally separate. A lot of the meditative experiences would have us have much more of a sense of interdependence. So these kind of uh, very strong experiences would be part of intervention. You know, that's why we sometimes on our retreats, we actually sometimes give less attention to the psychological material and more to having people have an experience for a while of having a quiet mind full of love because it has an impact. Again, it doesn't by any means end the transformative story, but once you've had that experience, things are different somewhat, even if you forget about it, right? 
So that's, that's, that's another, another way of intervening. And so with the uh, judgment work, we would follow, we would follow the uh, trail back to seeing through different techniques and means, back to people disclosing, oh, there's a core belief, anger is bad. It's a kind of ignorance that was there, understandably, as a coping mechanism when people were young, right? And they then uh, can actually open up to that, see it more clearly, starts to become conscious, unconscious material starts to become conscious, and in that sense it can be transformed. When I work with people around those issues, we both want to see the old pattern of ignorance and we also want to set up what we sometimes call the reversal or the transformed belief, which might be that I am a being that has anger at times. So it could be that. It could be uh, I have anger sometimes and I'm a beautiful being. <laughs> it could be something like that. So people shift that underlying belief. So that's getting at the level which we're calling ignorance. So the different kinds of practices work in different ways. Buddhist practices that develop a sense of wisdom are also typically intervening at multiple levels. When we have teachings, for example, right here, we're get this, this probably today would come more under the rubric of wisdom, what we're doing today. And this is giving a map, right, of looking at the roots of suffering, which potentially could guide us so the next time we uh, have an an old familiar reactive pattern, we say, oh, time to apply dependent origination. (laughs) How should I intervene, (laughs) right? And um, that would be the wisdom dimension of teacher. Remember, there are three, in traditional Buddhism, there are three areas of training. There's ethics, there's meditation, and there's wisdom. And they're all interrelated. But the wisdom would let us see, oh, here I can work with it. And maybe I'll just mention one further intervention and then open things up, which is that one of the meditative interventions that's really most accessible is the one we did at the end of the meditation today, which is working with that interval between feeling tone and grasping, between seven and nine, that that can be a very, very uh, rich way to intervene. And that is, and there are different ways to do that, but one way that I was suggesting is Look out for when the feeling tone becomes strong, either pleasant or unpleasant. According to this teaching, when we are unconscious, not mindful, driven by ignorance, the presence of the strongly pleasant will eventually lead to grasping. It will lead to wanting and then grasping. And the presence of the strongly unpleasant will lead to aversion and pushing away. And again, sometimes again that... Sometimes it's wise to get rid of what's happening. You know, if I have a knee injury and I have unpleasant sensations in my knee, it is wise to shift my posture, right? So not to say this is an absolute that we always just stay with the unpleasant or that, and sometimes it can be skillful. Oh, that strawberry was so delicious. I would like another. And sometimes that's perfectly skillful. So uh, just to say that. So we're not being, being overly ascetic, right? Overly like monks or nuns in some stereotypical way, okay? So we, um, but we, we notice the pleasant. Let's say that I'm sitting here and I have an unpleasant sensation in my body. I know that I can be with it for 10 or 15 minutes if necessary. It's not going to cause me physical harm, but my mind doesn't like it, right? 
And then I can actually say, I want to stay with this and watch my conditioning around the, the unpleasant physical sensations. This is a major part of meditation. Most people's is not their favorite part of meditation, but sometimes we have to hang out with the unpleasant. Unpleasant physical sensations, unpleasant emotions. Some part of our mind is saying, I don't want this. That's not what I signed up for. I signed up for bliss and happiness and wisdom, and you're giving me a back pain. It's actually, uh, it can be very interesting moments, right? And then we actually say, unpleasant, the mind doesn't like it, let me just stay with it and watch how my mind tends to go to, to um, aversion and pushing away. And then, and just to study that, that is a major way to practice and to intervene, because what we're doing is we are cutting through the automatic tendency to go from the unpleasant to pushing away compulsively, or from the automatic tendency to have the pleasant lead to grasping. So you see there are multiple places for intervention here with our ethics, with our mindfulness, with our uh, creation or our practices that lead to beautiful experiences which give us a whole different way of looking at the world. That is part of an intervention. Our wisdom teachings, our, um, all these different aspects can, can really be um, part of those interventions. So multiple interventions. And so we, we develop like this toolbox of, um, toolbox of ways to intervene to stop the cycles of suffering. And that's really what we're learning here. That's why we have talks on different topics because there really are multiple tools and multiple aspects. Sometimes we want to intervene at the level of action. Sometimes at the level of what's happening in moment-to-moment consciousness. Sometimes to go deeper into dispositions and the underlying ignorance. And all those are relevant. So let me finish. I brought a quotation in. There was, a, I think, a 14th century Tibetan scholar, practitioner, teacher named Tsongkhapa. And he wrote a long poem called in praise of dependent origination. <laughs> Perhaps you will write poems after we finish. <laughs> if so, maybe we could read them next time. Okay, so here is uh, the first, uh, first four, four little verses of uh, Songkapa in praise of dependent origination. I'll end with this. I bow to you the triumphant Buddha, who has seen and taught dependent origination, which to see it makes you a knower, and to speak of it makes you an unsurpassable instructor. (laughs) That's what he said. I didn't say it. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Unawareness or ignorance is the root of as much torment as there is in the world. Thus, you spoke of dependent origination, which if seen, turns that back. At that time, how would those with intelligence not have comprehended the path of dependent origination as being the essential point of your teachings? As that is so, how could anyone find as a gateway for praising you, O guardian, anything more wondrous than your statements about dependent origination? So let's just sit for a moment.
Thank you. Thank you for your kind attention. And we have we have some time for any reflections or questions, um, poems and praise of dependent origination. It could be just a question of clarification. Please. This is more of a reflection, really. Yeah. Yeah. Chapter yeah. two, when he talks about how we're um, the notion that we're born as a full sphere, really, not yeah. just a circle, a full sphere of light, and yeah. perfection, and that through just living, <laughs> yeah. starting with our families uh, and what they can tolerate and what they can't tolerate right away as an infant through yeah. years old, we, we modify who we are to make sure we get love supplies right. enough to keep going. Right. Well, it, it, it's often not thought of as, um, I say, not traumatic, but actually that is traumatic in, yeah. in, in his big view, which is <coughs> the way we modify is that that part of ourselves that isn't uh, can't cope or, or, or isn't welcome in the world has to uh, go deeply internally right. and, and become a kernel of energy right. and can't live in the world yet. And then there are various other versions culturally, teachers and peers yeah. have the same effect. Um, and and then later on, now, because we're meant to, to uh, live a whole life, those kernels start to rattle around, uh, usually when the ego is strong enough uh, or the life situation is yeah. steady enough to be able to tolerate discomfort. And uh, he talks it more, about it more about the lost parts of the selves. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I found that is often unnoticed or, or doesn't get named and it, and it perpetuates our ignorance about ourselves is when we've had those experiences and may and and then drawn conclusions that the, 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 yeah. about ourselves that involve medical traumas at an early age yeah. and accidents we we tend to go toward the dramatic traumas of, of war or child abuse and things like that but there are many other versions yeah. that the trigger lost parts of the self yeah. happening and and then that becomes the foundation of of ignorance, really, not knowing our whole selves, yeah. and making and drawing conclusions about anger is bad, or or uh, spontaneity is bad, or and I and I carry that, mm-hmm. so I must be bad myself. Um, so I just think it's really helpful. I so appreciate your teaching. For me, it's like oh, I'm yeah. able to see how this all works from this yeah. tradition. Yeah. Yeah. And remind me of your name. My name is Rocky. Rocky. So, thank you, Rocky. It was very, very clear. And the, um, you know, I, I have been giving a little more of a psychological interpretation of the model, which fits very well with what you said, particularly, um, you know, pointing to uh, Robert Bly's book. It's called A Little Book on the Human Shadow, and the shadow is the part of ourselves which we you know, are not in touch with. It's another way of talking about the unconscious material. Yes. But it 
particularly, uh, sometimes it's the parts which I think uh, Jung defined the shadow. I, I gave a series of talks on the shadow like three or four years ago here, which are on Dharma seed. But I think Jung defined it as those parts of ourselves which we disown you know, for various reasons, some of it at a very young age. Or we, but yeah, and that, the, that the Western psychology can be helpful for letting us know how ignorance occurs particularly at a young age, how we fragment parts of ourselves, often because it's the best thing we can do at the time. We don't, don't have many options. We fragment off. We develop what Bly called the long bag, or the big bag, the long bag we carry behind us. Yeah, we had, the, had this image. I saw it in a cartoon. It's like two people who are 25 years old come together on a date, right? And, and they, they actually look at each other and they're each carrying this bag which is like about 20 feet long behind them, <laughs> right? And this is their, you know, all the parts of themselves which they've fragmented off and they're not in touch with and their views and so forth and, and they try to be spontaneous with each other but it's actually the, you know, the bag is having a big effect. And so that's really what you're, you're talking about. And so to, um, yeah, to, I think all of these... Uh, practices can be helpful and also having, you know, a lot of, you know, what I was talking about in terms of judgmental mind benefits a lot, has benefited a lot by knowing a lot of uh, psychological techniques that help us to uncover what's, uh, what the shadow is. Basically, that's the good news. That's why ignorance is a hopeful uh, notion because underneath that is the, the wider truth and once we can tap into that of lost parts of ourselves yeah. or our culture or whatever. Yeah, and so how, and that would come under also of a skillful psychologist if someone's really caught, let's say, in a negative view. You know, like what I find in working with judgmental mind, I go in two directions. One is to actually see the patterns of ignorance. And the other is to open up to beautiful experiences, right? Like both are necessary. And you can see how there are different ways of intervening. You know, one is to actually see the negative patterns so you can be mindful, so you can cut through them, but then also to open up to, as it were, what we might call a sense of one's true nature or deeper nature. Because uh, what I found in practice is that both are necessary. And that if you just look at the negative patterns, it can get depressing. <laughs> and and it can, one can get a little unbalanced. You know, it's like, you know, I'm, I've done 20 years of therapy and I'm still talking about my mother. <laughs> when am I going to have a breakthrough? You know, so thank you. Thank you, Rocky. Other, other thoughts? So, Marty, please. Um, I've been reading, uh, actually just this morning, it's kind of serendipitous, I yeah. think. Uh, I've been reading A.H. Almaz oh, yeah. and a chapter about personal thread yeah. lifeline, and that uh, your life is uh, is understandable as a, a thread that everything ties in with everything else, and it's very understandable as you open to uh, how experiences that you've had lead to attitudes that you have that it's not just a, a disjointed, it, it, everything is connected, and that uh, 
there are gaps in your understanding, and those gaps get filled in as you are really open to and examine and inquire into why you um, respond or react to things the way you do and where all of that comes from. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, Marty commenting about the uh, work of A.H. Almas, connected with the Diamond Heart approach, some of you know. The Unfolding Now is a book, and again, he he's a person who's also brought together Western psychology with a with a kind of a contemporary approach to talking about. He uses the language true nature, and this, I think it, it fits very well. So you're pointing particularly to the way that the path of inquiry uh, we start to understand, and I think it's also very important to say that the whole the practice of loving-kindness and compassion, which I haven't mentioned explicitly, is very important in this because when we look at the trail that's connected with our own suffering, our own limitation, our own fragmentation, and we start to see those patterns more clearly, which is what you're pointing to, we start to see, oh, this is why I thought that, or this is why that happened. Here's the personal history. Here's the family influence. Here's the cultural and social manifestation, and so forth. And well, it's all this web, you know, and I understand that. Um, it has to be held with a lot of compassion and love, you know. And, and so practices like loving kindness and compassion would also be very important for this because some of what we're looking at is the trail of tears, to use that native phrase. You know, we're looking at the trail of tears and we want to be able to do that, uh, be able to hold it, basically be able to see it and hold it with compassion. And so that's where we could say that the heart practices that we do here, loving kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, forgiveness, uh, gratitude, all these practices let us, give us the energy to hold um, the vision of the roots of suffering, which can be a lot to look at, right? It depends on our history, but it can be a lot to look at. And I know, again, when I work with people with transforming and transforming the judgmental mind, I say, okay, the initial two practices you have to get really good at quickly are mindfulness and loving kindness. Right? Have to have a heart practice and a mindfulness. Those are your beginning tools. Right? And so, so that's a great. Um, but then we do we fill in the missing parts. We fill in we. We, have, we start to see the causal web more fully, right? Thank you. Maybe uh, last one. Yeah. It's a big topic, but I'll try to keep it brief. But yeah, if you, if you can be brief, that would be um, helpful. In the yeah. realm of hungry ghosts by Oh, you, yeah. And one part that I found just compelling is how he relates the physiology yeah. of changes. And um, I was struck the use, like thinking about fragmentation and how often there's a tendency to fragment. It's all happening here, it's all happening here, yeah. and to not look at a, a deeper picture, which is, it's not great news that you know stress actually recreates or, in a sense, rewires somebody, yeah. but it's also a very compassionate, ultimately compassionate way to look at it, because it's, it's and really a wisdom practice to say what's really going on here. Yeah. 
um, and to take it out of the knee-jerk place. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. So it's really referring again to the, the, uh, that Vancouver doctor who I mentioned before, Dr. Gabor Mate. Uh, one of his recent books is called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. It's his book on addiction. And uh, the, the studies, and he has in the book, he has a lot of pictures of some of the people he worked with. And he's interested in the result of trauma on physiology. You know, and so what we're really pointing to is more the mind-body relationship, which is, again, if we would fill this out, uh, the map out, we'd bring in these different complexities. We'd bring in the mind-body-heart relationship. We'd bring in the different ways that all these happen at a personal level, family level, social, cultural level, and that they all are inter- interacting. If you think of the example of racism, for example, or even trauma, you know, the availability of drugs, all sorts of social causes, right? Uh, or just the way that drugs are, uh, you know, that addiction is understood socially, more as, you know, as a, uh, you know, as, as a moral failing. You can send people to jail, right? You know, and uh, which is a fairly uh, limited understanding, which unfortunately fills up, uh, I don't know what the percentage of people in our jail is who for, for drug offenses, but it's very, very high. You know, is it 60% or something? Probably something like that. And that's, that's not based on uh, the understanding of people who have studied dependent origination, you know, which is one way to say it. But it, I think that there's a lot of ignorance even in how we react to things like that, which again is, is partly well-meaning but there's a lot of ignorance there. So, um, thank you. And um, it's a big topic. We could we could explore it more. Maybe I'll bring in some aspects of what we did today next time, because it to me feels very rich and could really keep going with this. But I'll so I'll keep on with the focus on in ways of intervening. But I'll bring in some further tools maybe continue with some of what we've looked at. Because, again, I imagine we could have a discussion now for another hour if we had the time. Okay, so thank you for your uh, kind attention. Maybe just, uh, I'll invite you to practice in the next week and remembering those different ways of intervention. Intervening at the level of ethics with action, intervening with mindfulness, loving kindness and compassion going more deeply into seeing what the roots are in terms of urges, dispositions, and underlying ignorance. See where you feel drawn. One, is there one way that you'd like to practice to explore this in the next week? And we close, and I have my hands in this traditional pose, which you can have or not have, doesn't matter. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a, we close with this uh, dedication of merit, where we remember that we do this practice not just for ourselves, but for others, and may our time together be ultimately of benefit to all beings. Thank you very much.